0: Radio Anion Mysterioso
1: Okay, hey, it's Radio Mysterio so here again uh, for the 6th of July 2013. And as promised, uh, our guest is Greg Valdez, who is the middle son of uh, Gabe Valdez, uh, who I've talked about on this show quite a bit. Um, I'll just read the co- the stuff, the, uh, cover uh, uh, blurb off the back of his new book here called Dulce Base, uh, subtitled The Truth and Evidence from the Case Files of Gabe Valdez. Um, middle son of Gabe Valdez, he followed a career in law enforcement like his father and has been involved in the mystery all his life as he accompanied Gabe on many of his investigations while he was growing up. And today we're going to talk about um, his book, about the alleged or real or imaginary thing called the Dulce Base, and um, many other things. Uh, Greg, can you hear me?
2: That's a lot better.
1: There. Yeah. <laughs> well, Greg, thanks so much for coming on. So it's uh, as you said when I called you up here, it's Greg and Greg. It, may, it might be sort of confusing, but probably not.
3: You can call me about that as if that makes it easier, but thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Sure. Has, have you been on a show yet uh, talking about your book, which just came out, I think, or will very soon?
3: Um, down in, we were in Roswell this weekend um, selling some pre release copies, and um, I did an interview down there in Roswell for a book um, blog that's down in southern New Mexico, But so this is actually the second interview.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. It, it wasn't Jerry Pippen. I guess it was kind of a local thing.
3: No, I wasn't Jerry Pippen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess you've heard his show.
3: Yes, a few times.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, Well, the people that are listening probably know what we're talking about when we talk about the Dulce Bass, or Dulce, if you want to pronounce it properly. Um, But uh, why don't you give a short description, since you're the the guest here, and then we'll uh, talk about your father and... um, what he found out about it, what you found out by going through his records, and, and, and uh, accompanying him quite a bit.
3: Well, the uh, Dulce base originated, and um, I know you're aware of the story, back in the '80s to mid '80s, and it was actually started by Paul Benowitz. Um, my dad got involved because of his job as a state police officer stationed in Dulce. Um, there were some catamulations going on at the time. And um, Paul Benowitz came, became involved because of some UFO sightings that he was seeing over at Kirtland Air Force Base. So that star- the story of the Dulce Base has evolved over the years. Some of the information is good. It's out on the Internet or in books, and some of it's bad. So the purpose of the book was to kind of set the record straight and um, get people back on track because it's actually a very interesting story, um, but it's filled with so many different layers and different versions it's hard to know what really happened, and hopefully the book will get people back in line so they can see what really happened, and we'll see.
1: Yeah, well, what I was struck with by reading the book was how many times you said, look, there's a lot of junk out there. Um, from my point of view, a lot of it doesn't make sense, and a lot of it is actually, from your point of view, Greg, a lot of it is, is outright false and sometimes lies, and sometimes lies for a reason, which we'll get into. Um, but there's a lot of you know want to believe and will to believe, and uh, a lot of this was started. And my idea, I think you seem to support it in, in your book, is that a lot of it was started as a disinformation campaign by the Air Force, the CIA, and probably probably the NSA. Is that what you is that what you and your father found out?
3: Yes, uh, I totally agree with you. And um, to further emphasize that, everything that's in the book is documented, and there's evidence to support it. So. Um, the book's not just based off random theories. You'll see that in a lot of the stuff on the internet, or people will add to it, take away, whatever the case. So if it's in the book, there's documentation that will support or refute whatever's in the book, which, um, you don't see that very often. So hopefully people will be able to go and look at the website when it's up and running and they can make their own conclusions once they view the actual evidence. And it's real evidence from the crime. My dad looked at it as a crime scene, so it's evidence is what it is, so. Yeah, hopefully it'll
1: make things clear. Yeah, well, it already does, and I I told Greg here when before I came over here to do the show that I haven't gotten through the entire book, but what I have was is absolutely fascinating, including some of the stuff where he said that I I was lied to, <laughs> I was lied to by Richard Doty, which I assumed uh, <laughs> yeah. in the book. So actually, some of the stuff that I assumed that he that he was telling the truth on was were things that were backed up by your father, like this. Um, like the uh, messages coming through his computer and the supposed looking alien faces on a little monitor or on a printout or something like that, and uh, the helicopter rides up to um, by the military up to uh, uh, Dulce. So,
3: and that part was actually true. Um, more of the part that he was lying to you was about the props that he set up that well they set up I'm not gonna say him, but yeah. that the Air Force or the military set up on Mount Archivetta it it deals specifically more with the props.
1: Yeah know? what what at the risk of saying what's in the book, if you can talk about it, what it since I was told there was something up there and Paul said there was something up there, but that does that does not equal the Air Force putting something there according to you. What what did you find out or what did you and your dad find out?
3: Well when Paul got involved into the story um About 80% of the stuff he was saying was true, and about 20% of it was false, that they were able to verify. So when Paul would come, he just kind of came out of the blue. My dad became friends with him in 79, and um, so Paul would come up with all this information about Dulce. Well, some of it was verified, and my dad and some of the other investigators, like Edmund Gomez, were always amazed. they go, where did he get this information? It's solid. But when he started getting into the alien stuff, that's when the information started going bad where it would fizzle out or there was just no link to it. So part of that 80% was a supposed crash site. And um, we found the crash site. We'd always assumed it was a stealth until recent developments. We kind of looked like we figured out what it was after the fact. But (laughs) the early initial stages... um, well, um, we knew something crashed. We just couldn't figure it out. Of course, according to Paul, he always said it was a UFO. We were able, never able to verify that or re- dispute it either way. So um, that's kind of where the story started with that crash site. And that was up, not Archuleta Mesa, but Mount Archuleta, which is a whole different mountain.
2: <laughs> yeah. And
1: that's uh, part of the story. Yeah. Um, Riley Tafoya, I think, uh is it Raleigh Tafoya who used to be the safety officer?
3: Or was it? Uh... Yes, he was a police chief, a hickory, a tribal police chief. Yeah,
1: okay. Because uh, last time I was there, about three years ago, I think, he took a couple of us up to the top of a mountain and pointed out mesa and mountain, said, that's the mountain, that's the mesa. The mountain is what everyone should be talking about. The mesa is a is a red herring or at least a mistake um And
3: actually, oh, sorry to correct you, that was actually Hoyt Velarde. Raleigh to right, right, of people. Right, right.
2: Right.
1: It was Hoyt
3: Velarde, I'm sorry. And then he was chief at one time and then back to lieutenant and chief. That's <laughs> just the way the small departments work. Yeah. So I'm sorry. It was Hoyt Velarde that took you up there.
2: That's
1: right. How did you know that when I started talking about it? Did he tell you about just, it?
3: No, I just, I know Dulce. That's the way things happen. <laughs> 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 when you said three years ago, um because to be honest with you, already passed away several, more than three years ago. So that, when you said that, and I forgot oh. uh, White was chief at one time.
1: Right, right. Yeah, he said public safety officer, but that makes, basically means chief of police there. I mean, it's just a different title.
3: Yes, and they change the title every yeah. few years.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I, it's funny. I had the, a very a very uh, nice, interesting, and strange afternoon with him going to his ranch. Um, he showed us where he said he saw a Bigfoot on his electric fence, which I thought was very interesting. And uh, yes. and uh, what do you make? Did, do you think that's what he saw there?
3: Uh, Bigfoot, I've heard Hoyt's stories before, and um, he has a ranch south of Dulce.
1: Yeah, I went there.
3: I've, I've heard, yeah, down by Lahada Lake. So I've heard, uh, the local people have also told me, and I've heard Hoyt talk about it, that he's seen, he's seen a lot of um, Bigfoot in that area, but I've never seen anything. Of course, I haven't been in Dulce for several years since we moved to Albuquerque, but um, yeah. growing up, we used to hunt in that area, and I never saw anything, but... Hoyt's more the Bigfoot expert than me. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he he drove us up to the top of this, this very high peak, and then he pointed out different spots. And then I came back to the, the the casino with him, and I sat in his truck with him, and he told me more things for about an hour. Really nice guy.
3: Yeah, and, and the, good, the thing about Hoyt is during the 80s and 85, when Paul Benowitz was in the middle of the story. Yeah. Hoyt was involved with a lot of the expeditions. He went with my dad. Um, he was with Edmund Gomez quite a bit. So they were up there looking for it. So Hoyt was involved with a lot of the, well, and also the mutilations um,
2: right.
3: going around in Dulce, because he worked for the tribal police for years and years.
2: Yeah.
3: So he's pretty familiar with the story. He's, kind of lived it firsthand,
1: also yeah well maybe we should background people a little bit more that don't quite know there, there's a wide variety of people listen to the show some people that know quite a bit about what we're talking about maybe some that not so much but are pretty right on you know or pretty up to speed but maybe a little bit more about you know how your father and then you got involved with what was going on around uh dulcie and the uh Hicaria reservation there and the whole scene there in the mid to late seventies when all this started.
3: And what really happens is in nineteen seventy six, um, it started with the mutilation. They found a, one of the mutilated cows on the Gomez ranch. What what was unique about that first mutilation is they found evidence of an aircraft with these tripod marks that landed. So the rancher Manuel Gomez goes into town to report the the animal because it was unique. This guy's been ranching all his life. It's not like He knew it wasn't predators and some of the other stories that have come out um, because of what was missing on the cattle. So what was interesting is when they went out the next day to investigate it, there were more tripod marks on top of uh, Manuel's tire tracks from the previous day. So right off the bat, there was this weird aircraft. They found an oily substance on the ground, and it looked like whatever this aircraft was, when it landed, it almost tipped over on a stump. So they've been seeing these UFOs or weird lights or whatever you want to call them, so that started, that's how my dad got involved, was investigating the mutilations. They had a lot of them in Dulce. So he gave a, a speech in the spring of 1979 about the mutilations. And Paul Benowitz was there, and he just happened to be attending this meeting that um, Senator Harrison Schmidt, who was an Apollo astronaut, he was a New Mexico senator at the time. Um, he gave this speech and Paul met him at that conference. So my dad had been seeing these lights, these weird UFOs for the past almost three years. A lot of the local people had been seeing them all the time, and they were having a ton of mutations. So Paul comes and tells them, hey, I I might know what these UFOs are. I've been filming them over at Kirtland Air Force Base. So that's what started the whole relationship with Paul Benowitz, because my dad was always skeptical about the alien part of it, but when Paul told him Kirtland Air Air Force Base... Um, they were already leaning towards military, government, corporation-type involvement in the mutilation. Yeah. And that's what piqued his interest, and that's how Paul got involved with my dad, and they just hit it off, and they became friends. So, uh, Paul ends up going to Dulce in, um, 1979, and my dad takes him around, and it, there was, a, those lights were so common in the time, on almost any given night, you could go out at 10.30, 10 at night, and you'd see the lights all over town, flying everywhere. So it was... Pretty easy to see, and that night Paul saw quite a few um, of the UFOs flying around Dulce. So that's where they really got involved in this, and that's kind of where it starts with the Air Force in the 19 well 1980 in January 1980, and then it evolved from there. And it's a pretty long story, but we have plenty of time. So yeah. whatever you want to know, we'll figure, we'll sort it out. <laughs>
1: Uh, what, the thing is, and I noticed this in the book, and I really like this, you say UFO or aircraft, but you never really say, because if you say UFO and you keep hammering on that, people automatically think aliens from other planets coming here in craft. And I don't think you want to push that in the book. In fact, you're trying to kind of get away from it.
3: Yeah, well, me and my dad both come from law enforcement background, so I don't know if you've had an attorney ever pick you apart in a. <laughs> when you're presenting a case, but we look at it from a law enforcement standpoint. How do you prove this? It's not what you know, it's what you can prove. So um, when you see a lot of the alien UFO stuff, um, my dad always looked at it, okay, we have a weird light, but just because it's weird doesn't mean it's an alien aircraft. Let's rule out the first possibility, military, human control. And if you can you, the stuff that he ever always recovered as far as evidence never got past that. It always tied back into the military or a human intelligence. And it never got past to the alien part of it. So um, investigations is nothing but process of elimination. And if you can't eliminate the human part, then you gotta keep following that trail until you figure out what's going on. And it always has gone down either military or government, and it's never gone to the alien part. Even though they looked at it, they, they looked at everything you can think of. It just never went that direction.
1: Okay, yeah, we'll get to some of the more exotic things as we go on. But the um, one of the first stories in the book, which I thought was fascinating, and as I talked to you on the phone before we started here, um, I, I mentioned a couple of uh, stories I'd already read in there where I talked to your father for the book. And I'm, I must say, when I first came out and met uh, your father, Gabe, um, he, uh, I was given his name by, of all people, Bill Moore. And Bill Moore, I guess, was good friends with me. He spoke very highly of him. Um,
3: yeah, yeah, they work together a lot. All, after a while, all these investigators all know each other. It's a small group, yeah. good or bad, whatever your view of them is. Yeah. But they're all intertwined, and they all worked together back in the 70s and 80s.
1: Yeah. He, um, just on Bill's word... Uh, Gabe just opened up immediately and started talking to me and telling me basically what, you know, uh, he was answering all my questions and kind of going overboard and showing me some of his uh, files and letting me copy some of them. So it was, I, I was kind of amazed that he was so open with me and it, it really helped a lot. Um, writing the book.
3: And, you know, my dad, that was one of his good qualities. And his, that was one of his personality traits. He was just friendly with everyone and. I think that's what was important now that he passed away. I think that's why he was able to figure it out because he's everyone that's a major player in this story or some of the other stories, he was involved with them because he was able to get along with a lot of people. So it's kind of a testament to him. Yeah. (laughs) In his personality.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. So what uh what what got him involved was just basically one of the ranchers uh, uh manuel gomez calling him up and saying hey there's this weird thing going on here and he came out and saw a cow that obviously wasn't killed in, in any way that anybody had seen before or was used to and then there's the other factor of these things flying around uh dulce um and the 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 reason i said that uh the, the other thing I wanted to say about your dad is he told me a lot of stuff that w- had happened when he was doing investigations, but not all of it. <laughs> and yeah. the first example I found of that that made my jaw drop and go, oh, wow, okay, was the uh, – he told me the story about cornering some one of these lights in a – he said it was in a field or at least yeah, a clearing. Yeah, gas buggy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He didn't say where it was. Yeah, I'll buy the gas buggy site, which we'll also talk about because I found that fascinating in the book. Um, I mean, I, I knew about it, but I didn't know whole the, the whole history and all the testing that had gone on. I just knew about the one, one or two tests. Um, the, these are atomic tests, but, which we'll talk about. But he had cornered one of these lights, or him and, and a couple other uh, law, law enforcement people. The thing I found interesting is that they were on the radio talking and trying to tell each other where the light was, and it would always get away from them. And, he, and uh, in the book you said that he said um, everybody should speak just in Apache on the radio now. And at that point, the light, whoever was listening to them, if that's what was going on they they were able to corner the light because whoever was listening to the policeman couldn't understand what they were saying,
3: yes, and that's kind of why, like I touched base earlier for it never really got into the alien story because that light used to mess with them. they'd be out there, they were trying to shoot it down. I know it's kind of wild west, but New Mexico's wild west, yeah, especially back in the seventies, and um they noticed that was one of the main indicators, like, well, if it was alien, they'd be able to figure out all these languages, and um, that's how they were able to trap it, where they tried to take shots at it, but they, they weren't lucky enough to shoot at it. So, or maybe they were lucky and they didn't shoot at it. It probably goes the other way around. But um,
1: Yeah, and, and it was that always was at night, so. That came out. It was always at night, and the things are pretty small to it. And from what you say about... Uh, uh, apart from what your dad told me, which I thought was interesting, and you put in the book that they heard this noise like a lawnmower motor, um, which yeah. is not aliens from other planets. If it's a little two-stroke gasoline motor, um, it's probably something else. But Yeah, uh, and
3: it was very faint. Only one of the officers heard it, though. The officer, when the aircraft flew over, the one officer, and he couldn't see it, <laughs> he's the one that heard it, and he said it made a small small noise like a lawnmower engine.
2: Yeah.
1: Which would indicate that it's probably some, you know, aircraft propellers or something on it. or As one person described to me on this program, a hybrid of uh, lighter than air and uh, directed thrusts of something, which might have been. Yeah,
3: and that's actually in the later part of the story because it's 40 years of the story. And that gets into the 90s and they start, my dad started finding that type of evidence. And some of the newer stuff that we found in the last couple of years uh, leans towards that same propulsion systems. It gets more detailed in the book as you go through the books.
1: Yeah. And but you know that finding that out early on is 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 fascinating to me. I did include that in my book because I thought it was important for people to know that not only was there evidence that, you know, that these lights weren't, you know, what people thought were alien or UFO, but there was specific evidence that there weren't, like this lawnmower motor noise. And the the fact that they could hear seem to be avoiding them based on the radio chatter so
3: yes and they were monitoring and you know like i told you earlier it was pretty easy for them to go see them any on any given night we would go out and look for them and we'd see them all over the the reservation and they drive around with the lights off the police cars and you know that's how they look for poachers with the game and fish or they still drip unrefined gas but um every once in a while they get Kind of a cat and mouse going, game going with these lights, and they would at the end of the night when they'd be chasing around, the lights would come and kind of buzz the police units and kind of say goodbye to them. Like that was fun, and it was kind <laughs> of weird, but that's one of the things that would happen. it was, was kind of interesting.
1: But they did the lights ever move in a way that you that people didn't think was possible for you know just any any kind of regular aircraft? I mean, did they move? Did they move like people think UFOs move?
3: Exactly. That's why they were calling them UFOs at the beginning because it was definitely unconventional aircraft—they up, down, sideways—and all the typical, your stereotypical story of a UFO.
1: But doing it so quickly that something like with a propeller or anything that couldn't really go that fast or or change direction that quickly.
3: No, and it wasn't. And it wasn't helicopters. And mentioning helicopters to complicate it. There was a lot of helicopter sightings in the area around Dulce also around this time period. But it wasn't a helicopter, and even the, everyone that saw it knew it was unconventional. Yeah. And, of course, time has kind of explained what it probably was or more likely was.
2: Yeah,
1: which is probably at the end of the book and which we will get to. Yes. So uh, what, what they were finding, and people don't usually find, know this or tend to ignore it with the cattle mutilations is that they were finding pieces of technology around and one time you said they found an altimeter and uh your father showed me a picture of a gas mask that was found once um so that this is how they knew something was going on that wasn't you know it was was a mystery but it wasn't an unearthly mystery
3: yes and they also found on one of the gomez mutilations they found a radar shaft and some people don't know what radar shaft, but it's old stealth technology. Yeah, it's basically aluminum shavings that the military used for years. They've used it since Vietnam, and they disperse it from the aircraft, and it blocks the the radar signal to make the the aircraft stealth. Or it reflects the radar signal back. And like I said, it's a very old form of um, stealth. On one of the mutilations on the Gomez Ranch, the machine malfunctioned. And usually, when it works properly, the shavings are are so fine. Um. You'll never find it because it's so small, but the machine malfunctioned, so it just shot the packages out in full packages, and they were able to see the flight path of the aircraft that shot it out. And then they did testing on it, and they tested it back to the Air Force, and they were they were curious where my dad got the samples and Edmund Gomez because it was supposed to be classified back at the time. <laughs> and to top it off, the frequency that it was tied to, was out of Longmont, Colorado, which is the air monitoring station for Dulce, Because Dulce is so close to Colorado, it's actually closer to Colorado than Albuquerque.
1: Yeah, so, much closer.
3: Um, it was tied into the frequency out of Longmont, which is the radar station for that was covering Dulce at the time.
1: You mean the, the the type of chaff that was found was, was designed to block the radar frequency being used in Longmont?
3: Yes, and that's specific. That's how much detail, which it's, it's really amazing because you have... My dad was a state police officer. The state police didn't have resources for dead cattle. That wasn't a priority. But, and you have Edmund Gorman a rancher, and they did some pretty detailed analysis, but it was cooperation with a lot of other agencies and a lot of investigators. that You know, they they picked it apart as much as they can, and they even found what frequency they were running off of. So. Yeah. So it wasn't just a, a rinky-dink investigation. It was a lot of detailed stuff. And it always went back to the government or the military. so
1: well, if it always went back to the government, I guess, uh, I, did they get stonewalled, I guess, over and over again uh, yes. asking questions? They must have. I mean, I've, I've, a part of that's detailed in your book.
3: Yeah, and that was, that's always been a problem. Um, of course, New Mexico, we have so many um, military installations out you have San Diego Labs, Los Alamos Labs. You can always find someone that will work with you, but they they won't go on the record. There's a lot of smart individuals that work. In these in New Mexico, and so they'll tell you well, this is what it is, but I don't want to go on record telling me so they had a lot of basically their informants were giving up a lot of information and helping them but so they would do an analysis on the side whatever um, government affiliation they were working for or non government whatever the case so um they had pretty good network of um of people that were helping them out, which made it a lot easier because. Without the resources of a major crime lab, it was hard to put all this stuff together.
1: Yeah, well, one of the people who I mentioned in the book and you talk about was Dr. Howard Burgess, who I think worked at Sandia, right?
3: Yes, he was a retired uh, scientist at Sandia, and he was very instrumental in getting the detailed stuff, and with his connections, they were able to use Schwanfield Laboratories. They did the cow hair test, (laughs) and they gathered a lot of very good scientific information that wouldn't have been possible without Howard's expertise and knowledge because he was a scientist and um they were able to gather a lot of very scientific information instead of just writing it off as a dead cow they were able to get a lot of pieces of the puzzle from using Howard as the the main scientist running the operation which was good
1: yeah well he he was creative enough that he I don't know if he came up with the idea but maybe maybe because they were uh, you describe in the book that that uh, your father and and Edmund Gomez were saying well there 's only they, they found out after a while that only a certain cattle in, cer- in a certain herds of a certain age age group were being mutilated, and they're, they they couldn 't figure out why so and then th- they further wondered, well, how do they know which one you know if somebody comes in the middle of the night to grab these things, how do they know without being detected and having a big searchlight going all over the field?" how do they know that there's uh, which cow they're supposed to to uh, examine or take or what or whatever they're going to do with it and um you, i think that uh dr burgess came up with that uh, squeeze shoot um experiment right
3: yes that's correct he's the one that came up with the idea of well they must be marked somehow because like you said they had certain patterns of certain herd, certain cattle, and it's a rugged, rugged country. You've been a Dulce, so you know how rough it is in some of those areas. Yes. Yeah. So they were always wondering, well, how do they pick them out? Because sometimes they'd see the cattle in the evening, and the next morning they find them dead, and it's in pretty rough stuff. Um, so they figured they had to be marked somehow, and, and um, Howard Burgess was the one that came up with the idea of using the ultraviolet light to um, check and see if any of them were marked, and sure enough, they found some that were marked. So.
1: And then the uh, and then uh, Edmund Gomez sold them immediately. I think.
3: <laughs> yes, they'd already they got hit pretty hard. The Gomez family
1: didn't they, they
3: have just to? As a, a side note. Um, sorry to cut you off. The, the That's okay. Gomez family founded Dulce. They were there before the Hiccarels were even there. Yeah. So they always assumed that the herds were tied into like hereditary testing because that herd was genetically in place since the eighteen hundreds through the breeding and all the. Or all the cattle that they've had. So yeah. um, it seemed like they were targeting certain groups of cattle. They used to bring in around 10,000 head of steers from um, Mexico every summer. None of those cattle were ever killed. It was always the ones that were local to the area. So they always focused on those herds. There seemed to be patterns. They were always looking for patterns to try to predict when the next wave would hit them.
1: Did they um, actually well. eventually, were they eventually able to predict that pretty accurately?
3: Yes, and they also, they got so far as even watching the jet stream, the weather jet stream. Yeah. So when they would dip down into northern New Mexico, they'd see an influx of mutilations in Taos, New Mexico, the San Luis, uh, Chris (laughs) O'Brien, you know him. Yeah. Um, They'd see a lot in Trinidad, Colorado. And then the jet stream would dip or head up north up to Montana, Idaho, and then they'd see an increase up there. So that was their best predictor was actually the jet stream for a while.
1: Anybody ever figure out why that might have been?
3: Yeah, I kind of get to it later in the book, but it looks like it was a lot of, um, the early early mutilations, it looks it looked like they were testing more for contamination from some of the nuclear fallout from the Nevada test site and some of the nuclear tests they were doing. Yeah. And then um, later it looked like the mutilations changed over to a weapons development program, and there's some evidence that goes with both of those stories.
1: Yeah, because for the longest time, when I was talking with your father, he he kept saying that it had something to do with um, some kind of pathogen, some kind of disease. And when you say weapons development, you're probably talking about biological weapons, right?
3: Yes, that's correct. Because the early mutations they were finding, um, which is a, a, a sub, it's like a sister to anthrax, and that's where a lot of the the evidence is pointing towards like bio warfare weapons at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So. There towards, that was in the early 70s, 80s. But as the mutilations progressed in the 90s, the mutilations had changed. They were finding different types of evidence. And one example was the meat was cooked on the back of the animals when they would skin it during the necropsies. Yeah. So it looked like it was changing into a, a wep- more of a specific weapon, either non-lethal or, or, in the case of the cows, it might. It looks like they were lethal, but I don't know. We don't. They never figured out that it was so it was killing the animals or it was the chemicals there's a lot of chemicals they also found in the yeah. mulated cows
1: yeah and then well that brings up the next question which you do answer in the book but um why do the why do these whoever it is need to sneak around at night and possibly get shot at shot down and caught just to take a few cattle and test them when they could have just basically gone around the country and said do we want to buy a buy one of your cattle or keep our own herd or whatever? Why Why would, uh, even for biological warfare testing, why would they need to go out and be uh, do covert uh, operations like this on, on cattle?
3: You have several different issues. First of all, the liability issue, because a lot of the early stuff looked like, uh, another thing I didn't mention earlier on the rates is um, the fallout rates. If you look at the map of the United States from the nuclear fallout from all the the testing during the Cold War, yeah. The highest concentration of fallout is also where there's a high number of mutilations, so they always tied that back in. So going back to your question of why they don't do it, first you have liability issues. They don't want to be tied in if there's a potential they're causing cancer, whatever the case, yeah. you know, or by or germ warfare, whatever's going on. Then you have these issues that <laughs> they don't want to get in the middle of that. When I say they, I'm talking about the government and some of these different programs that they were testing. So that's part of it. Uh, Second of all, if you start buying them, the first thing a rancher is going to be, is going to ask them, like, well, who's contaminating my cattle? or What do you need them for? Or it's just testing. So that'll induce more panic into people, and they'll start questioning stuff. So that's another issue. And then they just start putting their herds so condensed that um, if they were... To protect them, because that's their livelihood, you know. These animals are cost quite a bit of money, especially th- this day and age. Yeah. So they're going to protect them. And, um, of course, the bottom line is it comes down to liability. It's And it's it's explained in the book, because it's a pretty long story. But, um, and another side issue, uh, they did actually buy a beef herd, and they had it on the Nevada Nevada test site. Yeah, you
2: mentioned they
1: that. And they studied them
3: for years. Um, now, that's not part of the mutations but it gives you a good indication of why they were using cattle specifically. <laughs> yeah. Because um the bone marrow and some of the issues with radiation that's transferred to cattle. Um it's easier to test through cattle than humans. So yeah. Yeah. hopefully I explained that in the book.
1: Yeah, you did. Um there's also the issue of radioactive contamination versus uh, biological warfare agent or 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 pathogen or you know disease contamination and the different organs that are affected and which ones are are missing in some of these mutilations and that that some of the uh, the radiation affects different organs than the than the uh, other testing does which which yes, no. which seems to explain why only certain organs were taken
3: and it also explained why certain age like they always would find two to three year old uh, heifers or or cows that were dead, and it explained why they were picking certain age groups because the radiation contamination it would take several years to get into the bone marrow of the cattle, and that's what they were testing for at Nevada at the Nevada test site. So after reading those reports, it makes the reason those reports are included in the book is it gives you an idea of why they used cattle and what they were looking for. And then if you look at what they were testing for at Nevada under the controlled experiments, you can relate it to the mutations and kind of see, well, this is what they're looking for outside the safety and confines of the Nevada test site. It all starts coming together once you start under seeing the big picture and kind of looking at everything that was going on.
1: Have you had anybody else kind of confirm this besides, well, have you?
3: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is with a lot of the mutation stuff, it's kind of old news, dead news. Um, it's not as popular as it was in the 70s. So there's a couple of older investigators that I still keep in touch with that were friends with my dad. And they're pretty much on the same same page of, that, from the stuff that I've talked to them about. They're yeah. like, yeah, it is. And I have a lot of the reports. So, and the reports will be on the website. And the, the stuff will be free. People can look at it and they can decide what they want to. Yeah. How far they want to dig into it or
1: not. Yeah. See, that's yeah. good because if somebody writes you and says, well, where's your evidence for this and how did you come to that conclusion? Because I, I had that with Project Beta and I said, well, if I had to sit there and, f- you know, uh, have everything in the book footnoted and all that, the book would have taken another, you know, six months to do. However, I did put in my sources in the back, you know, all the interviews with your father, with Bill Moore, with Doty, with. Um, uh jerry miller uh actually i didn't call him jerry miller in the book but i did interview him um and uh various websites magazines newspapers uh uh old ufo um you know uh, mufon reports all kinds of things like that i mean all the stuff yeah. that goes into doing research that you have to correlate
3: in this story First of all, it's such an old story that's been ongoing. It's 40, 50 years of history. It's really history. That's what it comes down to. And like, there's a, a book that I could write off of the Mulations, If I was interested in writing books, which I'm not, not really in the book business, but
1: Chris is writing. Of course, one, I'm an author,
3: but I am now. I guess I don't have a choice. But there's <laughs> so much information that for almost every book or every chapter in the book, you could write another separate book if you just go down that one path. and... <laughs> But And that's what the website's for, because I have a garage full of stuff, and it's just files, and until and you access and look at those files, a lot of the stuff won't make sense, but at least people will be able to look at it and say, hey, well, I'm, now I understand what was going on back then. And A lot of it is just people forget about it because it was in the 70s. You know, um, Younger people, you talk to them about cat a lot of them don't even know what you're talking about. So, yeah, and that's just one small small part of the Dulce story. That's just the beginning part.
2: Yeah,
1: so, I mean the book is called Dulce Base.
2: Yeah,
1: it's called Dulce Base. So uh, a lot of the um, narrative in the book deals with that that facet of what was going on there. Um, so what about the Dulce Base? Most people, what they know about it is uh, what they've read on the internet, what they've read in certain. Um, Kind of wild books that don't really support themselves too well, but tell a good story. Um, and the the root of it all uh, was was uh, Paul Benowitz, I think, originally coming out and saying there was a base there and pushing that story. And um, probably and most likely and almost certainly at the direction of people that were pointing his nose there uh, yes. and, and trying to convince him that there was indeed something there and it had to do with aliens. Um, actually, when you when you talk about it in the book, you said that a lot of this disinformation uh, directed at Paul um, actually sort of backfired uh, with the Air Force, and the, they had to kind of backtrack and and uh, not really backtrack, but lie even more to cover up their tracks about talking to Paul, who started writing letters to senators and congressmen and the president and other researchers, etc.
3: Yes, because actually, no one would have ever known the Dulce Do- people. Not have ever taken it, given it a second thought if it wasn't for the Air Force. they're the ones that introduced that story, <laughs> which is ironic. <laughs> but that story came when paul Benowitz became involved in the whole story um I lived there, my dad lived there, Edmund Gomez, and that's what was interesting when Paul came along is he's the one that brought that whole story of well the Dulce basin a lot of it was being supported with with evidence, so it was found we found out later what. They kind of messed up because they they actually were showing him a lot of actual classified information, and they were adding the alien portion to kind of discredit him. But I think they underestimated him because he's very determined. Yeah. <laughs> I knew Paul, because I used to go with him, he was always at our house, or we'd be at his house. Um, you know, like I, I mentioned in the book, if people write to their congressman, senator, the newspaper, and tell them about an alien invasion, they'll just throw your stuff in the trash or ignore you. But... All these people took him serious, and um, in the book it's mentioned they were. We found the wiretaps in my dad's house, um, the ranch up there, the Gomez family. They had the wiretaps. Of course, this was back in the days of rotary phones. So, um, they do it differently nowadays. So, um, and that's where a lot of the evidence of, for the evidence points that the Air Force messed up by giving them too much information because they actually now they had a problem because they were, it's a leak. Yeah. They leaked out their own classified projects, and it wasn't just Dulce. it so was some other aircraft technology, which the book pu- puts together, you know, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle, and that's where a lot of this, um, the Dulce base actually was started by the Air Force, and parts of it are true, parts of it are false, and, um, that's what the book sorts out, and, and hopefully people can understand after reading it. Um, a couple of those stories that are, f- are false that you'll hear on the internet or, other books or whatever the case is there supposed to be an underground alien war that happened in nineteen seventy nine yeah and a lot of people will base their um their theories or books or whatever their case off these either this alien war or these whistleblowers that supposedly worked at the base like Phil Schneider or Thomas Costello but um the book I go into detail and hopefully point out how those the story of Phil Schneider is fake, well for the most part, or not relevant to Dulce, and the same with Thomas Costello, because once you get back and you view it from the big picture perspective, it all starts to make sense. But um, at the time, it, and it's taken years to figure it out. It's just recently that a lot of this stuff has been de- declassified. But the the Thomas Costello and Phil Schneider stories never had much credence to them. Um, the book goes into detail why. And there's evidence to support why they've never been part of the story. But unfortunately, things get added to it or taken away, and that's why there's a lot of confusion on the the Dulce base. But portions of the story are are true.
1: Well, what portions of the story are true? Because in the beginning of the book, you you uh, describe going out to um, out in the wilderness outside of well, most of it's wilderness, but in the wilderness outside of town to watch some of these lights and what they were doing in a couple of, in a couple instances, you, you've observed them kind of disappear into a place where Paul Benowitz said there was an entrance to the underground base. It looked like they yeah. flew into the side of the hill.
3: Yeah. And that was, that was what part of that 80%. He would come up and tell you, look, this is where their the aircraft entrance is to the base. And you at first, you know, everyone was skeptical. My dad, Edmund, everyone, they're like, yeah, right. There's nothing up there. But when um, we were doing expeditions up to Mount Mount Archuleta, they were flying to the side of the mountain. and It's not like just a random part of the mountain. It was right where he pointed. The reason we were there watching is because that's where he told us the entrance was. And sure enough, that's they were coming at night. And I sent you the video, and the video will eventually be on um, on the website so everyone can see it. But we camped out there one night with Dr. John Gilly and his um, jason bishop or bill mcgarrity whatever you want to call him
2: yeah
3: and um those lights popped up right where he said the entrance to the base was and like you couldn't script that part of it (laughs) 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 so that's where that 80 percent, a lot of the stuff that um he was saying was right then he would get on to like the alien stuff and that just never panned out it always died off when he started looking into that so
1: Well, what did you go up and look at that spot to see what was going on? Where 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 those things supposedly were going into the mountain, quote unquote?
3: Yeah, and where my dad went up there after they had a big forest fire up there in nineteen ninety six that burned the area, so it looked like that because of the fire. And this is more this is theory. This isn't backed up by evidence, but it looked because of the fire um, where that entrance was supposed to be, and it's an aircraft entrance. I have to be careful, kind of what I'm saying it looks like they closed it off and i'm saying they i'm talking about the government because there was rock that was blown out from inside the mountain and it wasn't ambiguous to the surrounding rock and it just looked like some had been blasted out and then once again you go back to paul's photos of his aerial missions that he was taken up there and it's right exactly where he pointed out on the on his aerial photos which brings up a whole nother issue because He's flying in a Cessna, circling this mountain at around 9,000 feet, and he's taking random photos. So have some of the photos, they're blurry. You can't see anything. In the ones my dad received from him, there were five black and white photos. Only one of them had anything that was verified. Some of them would say alien troops on the ground or yeah. you know, a variety of UFOs. And my dad searched for everything, couldn't find anything but rocks or blurry images but except for the one thing with the crash site so that was part of it that um, was true and then also he wrote a map and the map's in the book where he details this diamond pattern of uh, landing strip and he said there was pylons and in the book the photos are on there and they'll be on the website where there's actually the pylon And the, so Edmund had, saw the pylon they found it when they walked on the ground but they never could figure out what exactly it was for. Um, new evidence has come up where it. it looks like we kind of figured out exactly what that pylon was for. And to point out, we talked about uh, Richard Doty kind of telling you stories about the the Air Force intentionally placing props up there. Yeah. Uh, Edmund Gomez found a, ventil- a supposed ventilation shaft or what looks like a ventilation shaft up there, but. See, Paul Benowitz never walked around the area on foot, and that that area is so rugged, Paul would have never walked around there. It's just too rough. He didn't know the area, and that's it's one of those areas. If you don't know what you're doing or know the area, you can get yourself killed up there. Um, it's pretty rugged country, and they knew Paul didn't hike around the mountains. He would do it in aerial missions. So the story about well, we intentionally placed these props like the ventilation shaft or whatever the case. That wasn't intentionally placed there. That was there. Just, <laughs> you know, Edmund found it.
1: So, so what, did he see, what was he seeing from the helicopter when the Air Force flew him up there?
3: From the helicopter?
1: Yeah, because he was flown up there in a helicopter, I think, once with Dody and once with... Uh, uh, Colonel
3: Carpenter, I believe Colonel Carpenter was one of them. And Edwards, I think, it was even up there. Yeah, Ernest on Edwards. One yeah. Yes. What were they showing so, him? They were showing him the the entrance where the the aircraft will fly in and it's marked on one of the photos I have in the book they were actually showing them because if you there's a famous photo flown around the, the internet where three lights are flying and there's a rock outcropping in the back yeah. Um, yeah it's kind of all over the internet you'll see it a lot of people have that copy What a lot of people don't realize is the you have to focus on the rock outcropping in the back and then you cross-reference it with the, the map that I have in the book and he has some black and white photos, and there's more photos, and they'll all be on the website where you can look at them, and you'll see exactly where they were flying into, and that place has always been there, and that's they showed him that because he knew where to take the pictures. Yeah, he was able to capture them, and that was another thing that would so astonish us, like, well, how is he taking these pictures? And then some other story he would said he could communicate through them through telepathic communication. He would, so then he would start seeing stuff like that, and so. You're like, do you, do you believe him? Well, he has a photo, so, you know, this stuff's weird to begin with Yeah, when you get into it. So you don't rule it out, but um, you don't necessarily discount it, but you don't necessarily believe it right away. You have to verify it, and that's the hard part because some of it's backed up and some of it just goes in a, in a whole different direction. But the one thing he was solid is he seemed to have found the entrance, and I don't. It, we kind of think that he was shown that entrance specifically, so... Because he knew when to take the photos, and he knew how to
1: capture it on film. Yeah, so the, the thing is that a, a lot of people have seen, I've seen a lot of these pictures, and I can't see anything in them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, and, and the, they're the ones that your father had shown me, not not uh, the ones you're talking about, I don't think. Um, although yeah. in one in one of the photos, apparently, there is a shot of whatever crashed there. It's very small. It It looks like it might be artificial. I don't know for sure looking in the book. But you, your father also described to me, and, and you have too, actually, and you describe in the book, actually hiking up there or going up there after had it had been cleared off, because so, something definitely crashed there. And the funny thing is that I don't think... I think Paul just accidentally discovered that when he was flying around up there in his plane. He wasn't told to go look.
3: Yeah, and that's a, that's a key thing. We don't know if he um was told that or he just found it, because... On the photos, you've seen the photos where you can't even see the burnt trees in the photos, but when we walked to it, they were right where he pointed it out. Yeah. That's what was weird, and there was a couple of different, and it's in the book, and you can see where the burnt photos, they like, go, well, how do you see this in the airplane? How do you even find that air, the, the crash location without either someone told him or he just got lucky, and, and that's hard to tell, but um, there's evidence that something did crash there, and we'd always assumed it was a stealth until recent developments came out he was actually right what whatever this delta ship is and uh, some of this stuff has been declassified by nasa And um i don't think i sent it to you yet i need to email it to you it's a 500 page document and guess what's in that document it's a delta ship huh. and of course you got to keep in mind the time frame the stealth was still relatively classified yeah back in the 80s 85 when all this was happening so right we were always we were told by one of the guys on the expedition that worked out out of Los Alamos that it was a stealth that had crashed around that time frame. So, for lack of a better evidence, we always kind of just took that story like, well, that makes sense. But now that time's gone on, and we've been, I went back and researched it, they declassified all the crashes that they've had for the stealth. And that yeah. wasn't a stealth that crashed up there, of course. This is somewhat recent within the last few years that we found that out. Yeah. And the Delta ship that Paul talks about, you have a picture of it a picture of it in Project Beta.
1: His drawing, it's yeah. Tied
3: in, yeah, it's um it's tied into this NASA project that the BDM Corporation was working on back in the seventies. And it's a five hundred page document and it's <laughs> they even have drawings for you to make it easy so <laughs> so you know and once again you can't prove for hundred percent, but that document will be on there and it's almost identical to what that his hand drawing his hand print his <laughs> hand drawn um images of the delta ship and they're they correlate quite a bit and it just keeps going further and further and that's something new that's kind of popped up that um we kind of stumbled onto in the, the last couple of years it's fairly new so
1: well that's amazing because everybody looks at that and the thing was he he made about three or four different drawings, and they're they're all kind of different from each other. First, it looks kind of conventional. Then it looks more and more and more strange, like something that actually shouldn't be flying.
3: Yeah, and that's what it was hard because, um, you know, there's evidence that some crashed. That's pretty cut and, cut and dry, but what crashed, we still don't know that 100%. Now it's starting to look like there is a this Delta ship. It's, he was right about that. And... Um, we know going back through over over the stuff that he was shown a, a ton of classified stuff, and whether they made him the when I say they the Air Force or these government agencies were involved with him like CIA or NSA, um, whether they made a mistake or not, it's kind of crazy because he was dead on on a lot of stuff that's recently been declassified. So he. It looks like they showed him a lot of stuff that they probably shouldn't have showed him. Or they did it. He was a smart guy. Yeah. far as people I've ever run across. Yeah. And um, so they had to give him partial truth to get him steered in the right direction. And then they would kind of add the alien stuff to get him to discredit him. And you know the story yeah. just as well as me. but um, um. So I think the way to trick him is they had to give him a lot of classified stuff. And they did give him quite a bit from what's being released slowly. It was like he had a lot of stuff that now it's accurate. Except for the alien part. If you just remove it. with Paul stuff, if you remove remove alien, he's pretty much 100% accurate on everything he was telling every my dad and these other guys. You know, you know so that's the he- easiest way to understand it is just yeah. remove the alien part, and he's pretty much spot on on everything else. And you can reference it if you go and find if he says something about, you know, a radiation or nuclear powered atomic aircraft. If you research it, you're actually finding where. He, it supports a lot of what he's talking about. You'll find documentation plenty of it now that's of course now it's declassified. It. I wish we would've had it back in the seventies and eighties.
2: Yeah,
1: well it was <laughs> that yeah, that wasn't it was, the case. It was highly classified at that point. I mean, to the point where probably only a few people knew about it. So it was kind of strange that he would be they would be letting him in on this stuff. Probably because they're probably one, I guess because they knew he was very uh impressionable and was very into the alien alien thing that they could you know, most people would just laugh at him. Um, yeah. But some people who, you know, and you said that uh, Senator Schmidt and Nomenici took him seriously because, because of this, the, the part he was talking about that was real and that they knew about and they – they knew that something strange was going on with it, and they they wanted to know about it. They didn't care about the alien stuff. What they cared about was this this real stuff he was talking about, and that the worry they had that the, their constituents might be getting might be in some sort of danger, some sort of health danger, I guess. Um, yeah, because
3: Paul was always saying that that Delta ship or stealth we thought it was a stealth was uh, nuclear powered, so they, there was a fear of a. Radioactive contamination in Dulce, and that's what he was writing to all these senators. Yeah. And a little side note, in fact, that's in the book is um. See, my dad was friends with Senator Domenici through a mutual friend. He used to know Bobby Unser, the race car driver, because we yeah. used to run his ranch up in Chama. Yeah. Well, Bobby's the one that got my dad in touch with Senator Domenici, and they pushed it through the back door. That's New Mexico. That's how things work. Well, yeah. I think it's still work yeah, yeah. like that everywhere, but um. See, when Harrison Schmidt went down to Kirtland, they pretty much told him to, to go away, and they wouldn't let him on base, and they stonewalled him. But when Domenici came in, because my dad was talking to him, and was like, hey, this has nothing to do with aliens, but there's a potential for contamination. Um, Domenici was more receptive to that, and he goes, well, let's look at it, but he kept it re- very low profile. Yeah. And the way he got, into the, got information was using the Sandia investigators, not the Air Force investigators, and that's Don Stone and Sam Ortega. And there's always been a little bit of mystery of why they got involved. Well, it's because of Domenici. He was pushing it from the, the backdoor angle is what it was to get more information.
1: Well, that, and you also point out there is there were people hanging around sort of giving you help, quote-unquote. Some of them were yeah. helping, but some of them were, you know, kind of steering you in a certain direction, vacuuming up information and seeing what people knew under the guise of helping you.
3: Yes, that's correct. And so there was a lot of little things going on, and, you know, and... When you add it all up, now it makes a lot more sense. But and those are some busy years back then yeah. with everything going on. And- it's a
1: really convoluted story, and it's 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 got a lot of parts to it. And I wish I'd kind of realized when I was writing the book that – because I assumed a lot of the stuff that Paul was onto was kind of a – a, a bastardization of what was really going on i mean that 's what I tried to push in the book. There were secret mm-hmm. projects going on. He had stumbled onto them, and they were kind of trying to hold him off uh, by encouraging his alien uh, interests and also you know conversely finding out who was talking to him, who was trying to find out what he was finding out because if they weren't if they weren 't you know American uFO investigators or you know, somebody who hadn't been around for a long time, they they could have some kind of interest in them. Like a name would come up, and they'd be writing to Paul and said, "Oh, please tell me more about this." And they could find they could find out who that person was and find out who was who, who was interested in what. It was kind of like it was he was held out there as bait, I think, a little bit.
3: Yeah, and, and the, some of the stuff that was thrown around, and see, you forget some of it after all because there's so much information. But um, at Portland, they were. The, I guess the Yugos they had some Yugoslavians that were really trying to infiltrate some of the security systems back during that time period. Really, during the Cold War. So I think they were the Air Force, the intelligence agencies were worried about that. They were, I think, they were worried about Paul giving that information to them because they were operating in this area, which was kind of a, no one's really brought it up it as kind of a low key because it, it probably doesn't really matter in the story. But, um, but that might explain partially why they went full court press. So to speak, on Paul with just harassing him, and you've documented it well in your book on some of the stuff that they that they did to him. But um, and of course, this was back in the Cold War. It's hard to when you talk like this day and age. It's I always try to remember or remind people this was during the Cold War. This was during the 80s. There was still a lot of tensions, you know, because it's different now yeah. than uh, what was going on back in in those earlier days of the 1980s and the late 70s. So,
1: yeah, well there was one there was one main very specific and verifiable enemy and that's where a lot of the and you know affiliated states the, uh, iron you know iron curtain countries and they they're very easily you know uh dealt I don't know about easily dealt with but easily identified. Um now now it's not so easy and and actually Hanging around Bill Moore and and for, to some extent Paul Benowitz were a couple of Chinese agents as well.
3: Yeah. So and I don't even know if Paul realized that that you know <laughs> it's a lot bigger story of what was going on and he was right in the middle of it and my dad kind of got sucked into parts of it just because of Paul and it got pretty messy there for a while. But uh, your book has sorted it out, which did a good job because it. That was important to, for people to see get the whole story of what really happened. And, yeah, and it, it, it's a messy like you said. There's so many layers to this. You have the mutilations is one thing. Um, Paul's another story. The Dulce base, and then you'll get into NIDs a little bit later. National Institute of Discovery Science. Yeah, um, there's just a lot of different layers to it, and they're made intentionally made to confuse people. So um, once you can see through the layers it makes sense, and then kind of a light bulb will go on, and you're like, well, that
2: makes sense <laughs> now.
1: Yeah, but, and it, most people don't really have the time or they really care to get into it, and it doesn't really affect them very, very much. So, But the thing yeah. is, it's a it's a, an example of what was going on and how things used to be done, and when you see that and you see what was done and how, how people went about their business and how they were treated, you wonder what, what might be going on now.
3: Yeah. Like this uh, new stuff with the Edward Snowden, it's really not shocking to me because I've been around
2: some
1: of
3: these type of stories. To me, like, that's not really breaking news, but I guess for some people it is. Yeah. They could break into our house when I was a kid and put listening devices without a search warrant, so, you know it 's nothing new when he released some of that stuff, but i don 't want to get off topic
1: on that yeah yeah well the the thing was, what was what was the revelation was that it 's a lot easier to track a lot more people now, and it 's yeah. uh, being done, done warrantless for people that have nothing to do with what you you your dad and Paul Benowitz were doing back then it's it 's a completely different playing field, and for far different reasons, some of them not very uh, justifiable. So that yeah. it was important that that, uh, that come out, and, you know, the, I think the guy's kind of a hero for, for bringing that information out to make people aware.
3: Yeah, I agree with you 100%, because, like I said, I've been the, you know, my family's been the victim, the Gomez family. They have nothing to do with national security. There's no reason for them to, to collect private information. Or, they're illegal wiretaps is what they come down to. So, And it's the same stuff with the the new Snowden information that's been on I agree with
2: you hundred
3: percent on that. Yeah. Um, Sorry to get you sidetracked. That's kind of a thing.
1: No, it, the, this whole show is about sidetracking. <laughs> <laughs> if you listen to any of them, I mean, you know, people, sometimes I end up talking about baseball with people, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I try to stay on topic. Um, yeah. So what was, you know, what kind of stuff were they testing? What, what From what you found out without revealing too much? I mean, there's so much in the book that we're not talking about already, because one we don't have the time, and two it'd be interesting. People, you know, to, they should get the book and find all this stuff out. Just too much to talk about. But
3: yeah, it just there's so much going on. So if we, I'll try to keep it timeline just to make it easier. So we're kind of back at the crash site of the Delta ship and the stealth and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, what was this? The, what was this the Delta uh, ship? Ex, the
3: expedition that, where we found all the crash site and. When Edmund Gomez was up there, we took the video that I sent you. Um, what had happened is there was a, a scientist from France, Dr. John Gilley, was part of that expedition. So um, we go up there and find all this stuff. But what's odd is this guy that showed up. His he goes under the name Jason Bishop. Yeah. There's like three different Jason Jason Bishops. So yeah. His real name is Bill McGarity, or Thomas McGarity is what his name is. But he used to work at Los Alamos Labs, but. He's one of those weird things. He popped up at the right place at the right time. You know my dad? He never said no to anyone. So people came to Dulce. He's like, come on, let's go get in the car. I'll show you the UFOs. So, (laughs) you know, he would take everything with a grain of salt, but he never said no to anyone. And he's had good people go up there. He talked to good people, bad people, whatever the case, just he never said no. So this McGarity comes up, and while we were up there, and this is the whole key to the Dulce base, um, story and, and how it goes. While well, we were up there, we were just taking random photos of the area when we we're leaving. When we get back to town, we develop the pictures from the expedition. We camped out there for a night, and um, when we get back to town, when we develop the film, there's a some weird aircraft in the in the photo. Yeah. So Bill McGarity takes it and he blows it up, and he's like he brings it back, and there's an insignia. And right then and there, when Edmund and my dad saw it, they're like, this has nothing to do with UFOs, that's a military aircraft, that's a classified military aircraft. Yeah. And you can't have a better place to blow up your photos in Los Alamos labs. <laughs> 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 that's a cream of the crop. So, of course, then it starts this whole story, why can't I give you the copies? And a lot of this used to go on back in the 70s and 80s. They didn't have digital cameras back then. Yeah. So... um, but they're right then and there, they're like, this is what Dulce Base is. It's a, it's a military, classified military testing site. It's almost like Area 51. In the book, I call it Area 52 because I don't have a better explanation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, and that's where the story kind of came apart. And then you start doing, looking at some of the history of like the Air Force, their testing programs, it ties back to it. Some of the stuff that Dodie came out, the Weitzel letter, kind of ties back into that. And, and all the, you know, all the evidence is going to be there on the website and, and in the book, so, but, but what was key to that is when this Bill McGarity came up there, he never disclosed that he had, he was a classified, um, he had all these different classifications with NSA, CIA, and these intel agencies. He just said he was, oh, I'm just interested in UFOs and science, and I just want to see what's going on. Of course, you know, it's always hindsight, 50-50 is revealed later, like, it was probably they were either he was either monitoring John Gilly because he worked for the French government, and that of course this hasn't been proved, so I don't want people quoting <laughs> me. I try to be very careful of what I can prove and what's a, a theory. And this is a theory. Um, there's speculation that he was probably monitoring Dr. Gilly because he was with the French, associated with the French government, or um, he would just he knew we were getting close because of the crash site, and that kind of backs up supports more the theory that they gave paul the story of the crash site because they knew we were going up there and well they're bugging our phone so that wasn't too complicated we didn't find out (laughs) until later yeah um it's always the right place at the right time and this is one of those where it looks like that story was more of a damage control and out of that photo came the stories of the stealth and all this other stuff but it it, it's not a stealth because the photos of it I saw the ups my dad saw them. it's a different aircraft than the stealth so yeah. it's pretty much cut and dry well we're we're on the classified military project and that's why my dad was always somewhat hesitant to to release it because you know it's nice to be a free American <laughs> <laughs> but there's a line that you know how much do you want to divulge or how much do you want to keep secret our technology um So, there's always that fine line of what should be kept secret, what should be released. And that technology is so old now that (laughs) I'm afraid of what what probably replaced it since then. But but the bottom line is that aircraft was invisible and it's silent, and it was developed in Dulce. That's
1: kind of a gist of it. <laughs> what you're saying about it, it's funny because the first thing you said about being a free American, I was thinking, oh, well, I guess that means he could have been threatened. I don't think that had anything to do with it. He, he was, I think what he was thinking at the time was, well, this is secret. I've stumbled onto it and I probably shouldn't reveal it because I just don't want to reveal it because the government doesn't want it revealed and it shouldn't be. That that was his attitude, right?
3: Yeah, and it's, it's just, you know, patriotic. You know, my older brother's in the military. Yeah. He doesn't want to jeopardize these troops that are overseas if you disclose something secret. Because back in the eighties, like I said, they've advanced this technology since then what we figured out after that little expedition is when we were around Dulce, we just take random photos of the sky. You know, we go back and every once in a while you get an aircraft pop up in one of the photos. For whatever reason the camera lens would pick up the the image but your naked eye couldn't. It's the book goes into detail about the camouflage system, which has been declassified, and we've had that, of course, for years, obviously, because we're taking pictures of it. But, um, it goes into the technology of what was going on, and we just happened to stumble on it back in the day. And that's where a lot of this UFO stuff comes from, are the stories of it. So.
1: What's weird, and I just thought about this while you were talking about it, is you call it the Area 52 It is so atypical to have, why would you be testing aircraft in such a remote area with nothing for the aircraft to land on? Nobody would ever figure out that there was any kind of aircraft testing there at all because it doesn't make any sense.
3: Yeah, and actually, when you think about it, it's the perfect place. You know, Area 51 is not really a secret. (laughs) If I was uh, was Chinese or Russian, I'd have every satellite pointed out there, because you know that's where they tested. So what better place than Dulce? A lot of of people will say, well, there's no fences around um, the Dulce base. Well, there's no need for it. It's a secret base. If they put a fence, that's going to tell you there's something there. Yeah. And that just draws attention. Plus, it's so rugged, it, it would cost them so much money to put a fence in there. They just go up there, do a little bit of discrete testing. It's close to, actually, the Nevada test site, to Area 51. It's close to Kirtland, Sandia. It's centrally located from a lot of these major Air Force bases or military bases that conduct classified aircraft training. So it's it's in a prime spot, and it's the middle of nowhere. No one bothers you they don't report the light <laughs> yeah so what? was so actually an ideal place
1: yeah so what we've got here is that um the answer is yes there was some sort of base there yes there is definite evidence about it and yes paul benowitz knew about a lot of this evidence but since he said such cra- other crazy stuff most people ignored him um, yeah. you know, for the longest time while I was doing the book and before, I just thought, well, there was probably, ne- probably never any base there. And if if there was, it's probably not there anymore. And it turns out, yeah, there probably was a base there. And no, it's probably not there anymore because you said it had been closed up because your father said he'd take me up there and show me. But all I would have seen was a caved in thing.
3: Yeah, you would have seen where, you know, old stuff, the guard towers are still up there and this, the southern U tribe tore them down. Because they ended up with the property. You know, to, actually, the Dulce base isn't really in Dulce. It's in Colorado. It's in southern Colorado. where they were, it, it was on the Reading Ranch, and you can read it in the book. I don't know if you've gone that far yet. No, but, but actually I, I talked Colorado, to your father
1: about that. He was showing me those pictures. Yeah, that, and that's where they found the ranch. guard
3: towers and all the fun stuff. And So what's actually in New Mexico is the crash site, and that's where the aircraft crashed with the operations and all that other stuff was actually on the Colorado site. And um, one of the stories, I don't know if you read the story where Paul was flying up there with the CBS News crew. He was flying over that Redding Ranch. Oh, is that where they were? Okay, when they got chased by
1: the two helicopters.
3: Yeah, and he got chased by the Army Chinooks. And they flew into town and chased him around. And he ended up seeing one of these UFO classified aircraft, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) He stumbled onto, they were testing up there. And then they had the, military air, aircraft, um, protecting it is what it was. And <laughs> they chased him in the county. He stumbled into the middle of their testing.
1: Yeah, but the he thing left, was, he was, he, he, was that. he was with a TV crew that had some film cameras. Did they get any shots of any of
3: this? We don't know. My dad always tried to track them down, but uh, they were pretty shaken when that happened. Yeah. So I was with him at the airport when they came into town, and they left as soon as they were there for about 15, 20 minutes, and poor Paul was shaking. He was pretty pretty horrified because they gave him a a pretty good scare. They followed him all over the northern part of the reservation and ran him out of the area. And they're fully armed troops, so um, that's where the Delta Force story comes in that that Richard Doty told you. And that part parts of that was true, but um, they weren't there just to to do training missions. They were protecting that aircraft, is what it was. (laughs) From what it that's what it appears to be. Some of this stuff I don't want to say is fact, but that's where the story seems to follow
1: um. okay well what i had on the, the the show once was a guy who said he worked at a contractor in san diego that was working on a thrust vectoring craft that was also um lighter than air which would basically mm-hmm. reproduce all almost all or almost all the uh flight characteristics that people would ascribe to UFOs. it being able to hover stop on a dime make very very quick turns all that stuff is uh is that the kind of stuff they were testing up there in the late 70s? Oh, I'm sorry, I guess late 70s to mid-80s? Yes.
3: And um, it looks like a lot of this technology, some of this is is documented, some of it's theory. Um, I don't stray too much in the book, but a lot of it looks like it comes from old German technology that the Americans acquired after um, World War II. You're familiar with Project Paperclip because it's in your book, but it looks like some of this technology comes from Project Paperclip. Um, where the German scientists came to the United States and we basically made them work for us. Yeah. And it's also tied into a lot of the cat with the biological germ warfare. I think it was, the doctor's name was Eric Traup, who was out at Plum Island, New York, where they did a lot of stuff on animals, mad cow disease. Yeah, And that's what's where, after a while, all this stuff starts going in a big circle. If you're looking in the right place, and if you're looking... <laughs> For aliens, it kinda, that's why I said it kind of dies off fast, but if you start putting the puzzles together, it's all it goes in a big circle after a while, and then it starts to make more sense. So, um, But, the, yeah, that lighter-than-aircraft, it seems like that's been around for a while. And if you start looking at some of the reports that I'm going to eventually post, these are declassified NASA reports or
2: yeah.
3: Air Force, whatever. The key is looking at the dates of the references because you'll see that, okay, 68 forty seven they've been developing this since a long time ago it 's not like it's just you know, you know two thousand and ten that they have this system that right that come right out. no it's declassified that tells you how old it is if they're declassifying it's yeah. so irrelevant to them that they don't even pay attention when you make that key that key to it
1: yeah when you make a reference to paperclip and unconventional aircraft, are you talking about things that people talk about now? having to do with, I guess, you would call it anti-gravity?
3: Yes, zero-point energy. Yeah. you probably heard of some of the zero-point energy. Yeah. And then we'll probably get to that story that's towards the later chapters of the book, but you start getting into the NID story, the National Institute of Discovery Science.
2: Oh uh, yes. Um,
3: you start getting into some of that zero-point energy and those type of stories towards the later time frame, which would start being in the 90s. Because we're still kind of, with the crash that years, we're still kind of back in the early 80s, mid 80s. Yeah. So it starts developing. And once again, you'll start seeing the same players involved. You start, and if you really Mm want to dig into this, you can dig as deep as you want, but start looking at all the players associated with the different, you know, the different parts of the story. Follow their history and their research, and it'll open up a bunch of doors. And especially with the NIDS, the Science of Virus, the Reboard, which we can get into in a little bit. if you start following the research, you can see where, what to look for, and it just keeps going and going and going. And then you'll kind of see how it's all tied into one big picture. <laughs>
1: you mean, because uh, when uh, your father worked for NIDS on a uh, cattle mutilation project, I believe sometime in the early 2000s.
3: Yes. Uh, because the, I talked Kind of to mid-90s him, to late, or early 2000s.
1: Okay, yeah, because I talked to him while he was still working on it, and he wouldn't t- tell me what he was doing. Um, he couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I, he said he had a non disclosure, so he couldn't. Um, but he. yeah, can't... Go ahead.
3: And they're a key to it. Um, you mentioned the non disclosure. NIDS has always been a mystery stuff, and I document, hopefully I document it in the book. I kind of have to watch what I say about it because of liability issues, but um, that's a key to it. And if you understand NIDS, you'll understand the whole story, and the whole thing will come together after that because um, that's a big key to it. And that's where, where my dad actually. The light bulb is like, this is what it is, and that's where he basically solved what was going on with the mutilation in the, and the UFOs and all this other stuff.
1: Yeah, you have to he... read
3: the book for the rest of that story, so right. really, but that's where a lot of it is. So.
1: He, was, he was hinting to me at a lot of this stuff for quite a few years before he died, and he would get close to it, and then he would say, well, if you want to write a book about it, I've got names, I've got dates, I've got company names, um, and I suppose some of that stuff's in your book.
3: Yes. Because I didn't sign a non disclosure
1: agreement. <laughs> I
3: don't yeah. know if that's good or bad, but we'll yeah. find out here soon.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well what well, so what you're saying about NIDS, what you're hinting here about NIDS, which uh like you said is is a National Institute for Discovery Science, which is a private a private organization funded by Robert Bigelow, who's also involved in private space exploration now. Most people know that. Um, their logo, actually, one of their logos is an alien face for their spacecraft. Yeah. So uh, that's that's a whole other story. But, and um,
3: also, they bought the... Well, Mr. Bigelow purchased the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, which is another side story. But Yeah. Um, and I know you've dealt with Chris O'Brien, and he's followed the Skinwalker Ranch. But there's a lot more going on on the Skinwalker Ranch, too, where... In the book, I call Skinwalker Area 53 because it's similar to the dual T-A
2: story.
3: <laughs> but... I don't know if you've gotten that far yet because that's more toward
2: the end of the book. So. <laughs> no, I, I haven't
1: gotten that far, and when we get to the end, I'll either interview again or probably call you and <laughs> or email you <laughs> or come out to New Mexico maybe and just hang out and talk. But um, w- w- the, the inference I get from NIDS and, and their involvement is that they're not there to find out the secret to the UFO mystery, really that's no. not really what they're there for what they're trying to, what they are is a uh, private clearinghouse for strange information and technology
3: yeah and see what started off is nit comes in and they get a hold of mufon the mutual ufo network yeah and my dad a lot of what they, they what they do is they get all the cream of the crop every top investigator and paranormal you name it ufo's um academy they get them all under the one umbrella mufon they come in and they throw money at him, which is, always works. And <laughs> if you remember the Paul Bennewitz story, they also did the same thing to him. They gave him the, the grant for, what, 100000 or $75,000 yeah. to work for him. And that's where Paul got all his information. He essentially became an employee of the government. And that's where where he was debriefed and given a lot of the classified stuff. Well, Nids did the same thing to all these top-level investigators. They were out in Vegas and disclosed. So basically what they did...
1: Yeah, I remember. I was out there when they were recording them.
3: Yeah, they Excellent. came in and got everyone's files, and thanks for the info. They tied up, they figured out where a lot of the loose ends were in the investigation. And um, People always tell me, like, why aren't you worried the government's going to come steal your files? No, they have them already. <laughs> you know, they've seen them before. It's not like, uh, I'm not worried about it. Because you hear some of these stories floating around where they're going to come take everything. That's what needs was for they came in and gathered all the information. Um, they tracked everything that was going on, but they never told anyone what they were finding.
1: So yeah, it was because the they're, it. they're a private organization and they don't have
3: to. Well, they're supposed to be a private organization, but there's some issues there, and you can read that in the book. But um, all right. there's more to it. If, it. if Here's something to think about if you're out there listening. Um, the FAA, if you see a, a UFO and you want to report it, you go to the FAA um, website or whatever, and you fill out a form. That form goes to Bigelow Aerospace. So you might think about that for a while and say, "Well, why is a private company, a so-called private company, tracking UFOs for the Federal Aviation Administration?" And maybe the piece, the that part of the puzzle will start coming together for for people right. when they listen to it. Yeah,
1: I was about to say something about it, but you know what? I'll let people figure it out. Yeah. <laughs>
3: And this is being recorded too, so I gotta watch what I say. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I understand. I mean, and you're not gonna say anything that isn't in the book anyway. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think, in a lot of ways, if you know what you're reading, and you have a little background, I think, and if you're interested in the in the this mystery, um, from what I've heard talking to you and what I've read so far in the book, and I'm about, I guess, a little over halfway through it. It sounds like it, this is uh, your book is probably a lot more important than anything I wrote or Chris at the, this point Chris wrote or Chris Lambright wrote because it's the kind of information that's there for people who are really interested and want to know about this specific subject. There's a lot of um, uh, what's the word? There's a lot of implications in the book that go way beyond the, the Dulce base story and aliens and cattle mutilations and all that stuff and get into things about technology and power and secrets and and uh that game which to me is far more interesting than the ufo thing in a lot of ways
3: yeah and i appreciate the the compliment and the credit goes to you for starting this with project beta but for me the story's real clear it's always been clear because i've lived it you know and it's yeah. easy to see it yeah but um that's what a disinformation campaign is to get you looking in one direction when they're doing it. something else is going behind your back.
2: Yeah.
3: And, um, when you get the whole picture of what really happened, um, it's different than Alien. And then that's what's kind of shocking to people is like, oh, that's what was going on. I and mean, then it's still very important that they know what's going on.
2: Yeah.
3: Because <laughs> it's not a joke, but, um, it's something that needs to be told. People need to know about what really yeah. happened. And for I was, me, it's crystal clear because yeah. I've just been around it so long, and yeah. that's how my mind thinks. Yeah. Um, that's how I, what I do for a living. So I so would for think, me, it's always been simple.
1: Yeah. I would think that most people that are into this stuff probably will read part of your book and then become disinterested because it's 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 not telling stories of aliens doing things or, you know, our connection to the cosmos or anything like that. It's a very simple, not a simple, it's a very earthly explanation for a lot of the weirdness that's been going on, how it started, how it was propagated, and what it was used for, and what it still may, may be used for in a far different and far more advanced form at this point.
3: Yeah, and the, that was the hard part about writing, because I'm not a writer. I just, I just did it to document my dad's story. So I was, it's hard not writing it like a police report or just or a term paper, but the story is very intriguing if you read it. And hopefully the book come ac- comes across at least you want to finish reading it. But uh,
1: um, oh yeah, it, it, well, that was
3: the biggest challenge of writing the book was putting the information so that it's not boring to read and it, you want to read it and, and keep digging into it because there's a lot of good stuff in there, if, and, but you got to know where to look. And if you know uh, where to look,
1: yeah,
3: it, a lot of things become clear very quick after you're looking in the right direction
1: yeah i might be a really bad test case because i'm reading it and every time i pick it up unless i get interrupted or distracted or whatever by things i need to do i'm completely engrossed in it because i'm looking at it going oh oh yeah that's what that is yeah oh that makes sense now and yeah. to anybody that listens to this show normally um, probably would feel the same way because they, they, we've been talking about this stuff for years on this show um, and I've been talking about with to, with it uh, about it to other researchers. There's a lot of stuff I've talked about with researchers that doesn't get on the show. Um, things that I don't really want to talk about on the show because um, I like holding those things close. Because if you don't put out a certain kind of in, certain bit of information, and somebody comes to you and they know that piece of information, you're more inclined to listen to them.
3: Yeah. Hopefully, the book comes across as that. And and I just try to tell you the stories that happened because when I was growing up, the most interesting stuff was riding with my dad. I was like, well, that's weird. (laughs) What does that mean? We find stuff on the cow or to see the light. So I just kind of tell it as a timeline. So hopefully. Um, you can follow along like we did when we were living it, you know? Yeah, yeah. We, well, the we best way to round. tell a
1: story is to tell a story, you know? And I, uh, so far, when I, as I'm reading the book, there is a story in there. It's a story of, you know, what happened, how it was, how it was revealed, what, uh, how these different facts were revealed to you and your father and other people involved in the community and in law enforcement and what the implications are. And, and to me, that's fascinating. That's, you know, that's I don't think I – there's not one story about aliens in the whole book yet, and I don't think there will be, and I don't want yeah. to see one.
3: <laughs> well, it never went – the story never went there, so why yeah. am I going to write about something that didn't happen? So Yeah. Um, like I said, there was always evidence to point in a certain direction, and that's – a good investigator follows the evidence. They don't create evidence or <laughs> or yeah. ignore evidence. They go where the evidence takes them, and that's what the book does. It takes you what was found and what wasn't found.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I just wanted to repeat one more time. If you read this read Greg Valdez's book, you if you read it and pay very close attention and you've been following this for a long time, a lot of stuff will become apparent to you and it's it makes a lot of sense. And coming from somebody with a law enforcement background who has basically the same background as his father and work with him on a lot of these cases, I I can't recommend the book highly enough. But the thing is, I think a lot of people won't pay attention to it because it doesn't have that wow factor with aliens in it that, that everybody wants. And I think that's why, you know, the book wasn't written until now. One, because I don't think anybody really would want to publish it. You know, if you went to a bunch of publishers, they'd say, what? What's this? And two, there wasn't somebody placed in the way that Greg is to do to write the book. So... The 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 good thing is that one you know somebody did something with these files, um, and two the self publishing thing it's not is it self published or did you go through a publisher?
3: No, I just did it myself. For that reason, the reasons you just explained, I just want to get the the story, and it's not for marketing. It's not to sell aliens or whatever. Because I know I know there's some books floating around where. It's just nonsense. I laugh when I read. I'll read like two pages and I just throw it away because, yeah. it's like, this is so blatantly junk. I don't even waste my time with it. I got other things I'd rather do.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, like that uh, guy that who was it? The Colonel X or whatever from a couple of years yeah. ago that was saying he was he worked in Dulcie and you know I I once um, wrote a post. Richard Doty will not talk to me anymore. He he says he <laughs> he doesn't want to talk to me. Because I wrote a... Do you remember this uh, Serpo thing that came out about, I don't know, five or six years ago? Yes, I do. (laughs) Did you see that when it first came out?
3: Yes.
1: (laughs) What did you think was going on with it?
3: Just more disinformation. My opinion is just more disinformation.
1: In service of what, though? Because disinformation... In the the
3: book, um, Richard Doty, he'll talk to pretty much anyone about aliens, and he's always talking about aliens. And going back to classified aircraft, he's been grilled on classified aircraft before. Yeah, and he won't say he won't talk about it. He'll shut you down and like, oh, that's it. But then on alien stuff, he'll keep talking. Well, which is a bigger secret? If the alien stuff, assuming let's assume that alien stuff was true, why is he so willing to talk about aliens, but when he's grilled on classified military projects, just mundane stuff? Yeah, he's real tight-lipped on that. So that kind of. Gives you an idea. That's why I always take those stories with a grain of salt. Like, right. well, if they're 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 more than happy to let you go down one direction, and that's what disinformation. Yeah, is designed to do, and these guys are trained to do that. They're very good at it. And you know, he's no dummy. He's a smart guy. Yeah, and he's had all the training. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the point was that I, I put out the this. Uh, <laughs> I looked into it a little bit, talked to Bill Moore a bit. Uh, gave him some of my ideas about it, and he said, "Well, look who's involved in it. You know, the same people that were hanging around Paul Benowitz and doing that are now involved in this Serpo thing. So, what do you think is the answer there?" I
3: yeah. think it's still same, still some of the same because he still has ties to a lot of these old his old employer and yeah, and the people he was involved with.
1: And he, for some reason, he he wrote me and he a very short email and he said, "You're because I." <laughs> the uh, the title the title of my post was Serpa was a big fat fake, <laughs> and he wrote to me and he said your your post offended me. Don't write to me ever again and take me off any list you have. And that was it. He never answered me again.
3: And that's kind of the the he had that the run-ins with Robert Hastings back in the days. So with Doherty would get along with him and they'd fight and they were going back and forth. But um, it seemed like they'd fight when they were kind of getting on stuff that Richie Doherty didn't want him. You know, and they start not going the direction or not following the path that he wanted him to go. <laughs> but actually, out of that came a lot of good information. If you sort through it and you learn the whole story, you can kind of, you can get a very good feel of what was going on. So it's good. I've I've seen the the stories where Richard's nice to some people and he's not nice to other people. I've met him. when I have worked with him before when I worked with state police. Yeah. yeah. I talked to him a little bit. He didn't really talk to me. My dad knew him, so Richard Doty's Richard Doty. So.
2: Yeah.
3: He knows a lot, but it's up to him if he wants to tell it. And tell the truth, you know, a lot of the stuff's already been shot down that he's put out. So After yeah. a while, it's hard to tell. So that's why, the with the, when I put out the book, I wasn't so worried about what Richard Doty had said. I just want to at least... If I could verify that what he said was wrong, at least document that. And some of the yeah. stuff he said is true. And he's a, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I have nothing against him, but I'm not. I don't really take too much credence in the stuff he said because most of the stuff has been, you know, with the Linda Howell incident where he was releasing yeah. all this information. Right. Take it with a grain of salt. And if he has it, the information or evidence, fine. He can provide it. If not, um, I always. My whole goal with the website is, if it's in the book and I can prove it with evidence, then I'll put it in the book. So a lot of these investigators that have come up, they don't have any evidence. They'll just tell you random stories, and if yeah. they don't have, an you know, something to back it up, and ignore them or verify it or whatever the case. And that's the frustrating part for me is a lot of uh, the junk stories that are floating around. It's like, where do the people come up with these stories?
1: I don't know. I I really don't. I guess they just... Well, I've seen it a lot. If something flatters their prejudice, then it's true. And if it doesn't, it's not. Uh, Yeah,
3: uh, they're actually very good. What I tend to notice is a lot of the stories, they're very good creative writers because they take bits and pieces of a lot of stories and then they'll just spin it into their own version. I guess it's good entertainment, but it's not factual. Most of it's not factual. From all the stuff I've seen, the majority of it's fake. So, <laughs> yeah, or Just crazy stuff. So.
1: The weird thing is that uh, Richard Doty did tell me about a classified aircraft, and I don't know whether to believe him about it.
3: Yeah, see, that's the hard part. Um, so until they start backing it up with documents, and, and even that's hard because some of the documents that he did provide in the past were falsified. Yeah. So the, my take on it is take it with a grain of salt and Go at it from a different angle. Go at it from, you know, some of the evidence that was found at the mutilations or from Paul found on the the engine technology and hit it from that angle. And yeah. You can weigh it in. Take Richard's stories, some of them. You, you know, a lot of this is partial truth. Yeah. Um, sort through the partial truth and you'll get a better picture. But until people come in, until they provide factual the evidence, they just kind of, okay, well, it's good to know, but that, yeah. It doesn't mean that it's 100% true. Yeah. I'll just keep that in the back of my mind. Well, this, that's where it gets hard, is yeah. remembering what stuff is fake and what's not.
1: So. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. One, if you're so in, you know, you're know, such a dilettante about it or you're so interested in it from one angle that you kind of ignore a lot of things. Um, the strange thing is that w- w- the the uh, story that Dodie told me was about, do you know about the Cash Landrum UFO? I think that was in my book.
3: Yeah, in Texas. Yeah. Paul followed that quite a bit too.
1: Yeah, because that happened, I think, in 1978 or nine or something like that. Right in the middle of all this. Um, yeah,
3: because um, they had the the people had the radiation exposure, yeah. and the government came in and paid their bills. <laughs> I haven't looked at that case in a while, but I'm familiar with it.
1: Yeah, well, what what uh, Rick told me was that um, I. S- I don't know how the subject came up and he said well that was that was a US piloted atomic craft it was powered by atomic energy and it was just it didn't work real well and he said the reason it was hovering around is that they the what happened is that there was a pilot or two pilots inside it and they had a bunch of TV, like video cameras and in 1980 video cameras weren't you know I guess they could make them fairly small but the thing had to be so heavily shielded he said with from radiation that they they couldn't have windows in it, so they had a bunch of cameras around it, and a bunch of the cameras ran out, and they didn't know where they were, or where, you know how high they were off the ground, or anything really. So all these ca- uh, they they had been out over the Gulf of Mexico, and they flew in over Texas, and all these all these uh, helicopters came in to try and guide them back to base. That was his story, which sounds fairly plausible. So I don't know actually, what to yeah, believe. When, when you said it, <laughs> that,
3: that actually sounds pretty accurate now. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Maybe he was telling you the truth on that. That could be 100%. So.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds kind of strange to me. And why he would admit it to me and no, knowing, you know, he, he didn't say that, no, this is a secret, don't tell anybody. He just told me that's what he'd heard that it was.
3: Yeah, and actually, from some of the stuff that was found at Dulce or other places. That actually sounds pretty accurate, so he might have been telling you the truth on that, and there's a good possibility that was. that I, Actually, some of the video cameras and the stuff you're talking about, Yeah, that's towards the end of the book on some of this advanced camouflage system that the oh, United yeah. States has. It's already been released, or whatever, so, or partially released. <laughs> oh, I think,
1: yeah, I think uh, your dad told me about this, about uh, uh, certain types of aircraft skin that were basically... One side, you know, it was it was a bunch of video cameras and a bunch and a skin that could uh, project anything on it that was being fed to it by the video cameras. So all the video cameras pointing out one end would just show what was behind the plane from that point of view on that side of the plane or aircraft or whatever it was.
3: It's called optical camouflage, and that's why the lens camera the camera the lens would pick it up, but not your naked eye. And that explains why we were able to take photos. But if you go to, like, there's some YouTube sites. Uh, I just started a Facebook. I have a thing on on the Facebook with the optical camouflage. It looks like the Army is using it in Iraq, where they were actually able to take a video of a soldier wearing a suit. They even have it now where the soldiers, it appears, where they have a suit that they could use. So so it looks like it's been, well, we saw it in Dulce in 85 with this aircraft, but it looks like they even have it on a suit that the soldiers can wear from some of the stuff I've seen. So.
1: Oh, you know what? So I bet it, uh, what, that wasn't too far off. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you what 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 the mechanism of it is, but I would figure that the reason the camera could pick it up is there was some kind of delay in getting the the signal to the to the uh, to get to be displayed, and then once in a while there might be a glitch or a a spot at which the thing blanks out that your eye can't see, but the camera can.
3: Yeah, because of the speed, a lot of it points back to like LED technology. Oh. Um But I don't know enough because I'm not enough. I'm not scientific enough to explain it in detail. Yeah. But um, it, it. But whatever it was, the cameras would pick it up for some reason. And Once my dad figured that out, he was able to get pictures of several different um, aircraft in in different areas just by doing that, just taking random photos of the sky. And the, who, who does that? You know, very few people just take photos unless there's something they want to. Yeah. <laughs> You know who takes? So.
1: You know who used to take random pictures of the sky was Paul Benowitz.
3: Yeah, that's where my dad got that. Yeah. He, he, see, Paul would always tell him that. And he goes, "The UFOs are in the clouds." He would always say that or tell my dad that. So when we got that picture developed at Nanoarcheletta, he's like, "See, he even knew about that." That's another one of the things that was verified. So that's why they started taking pictures. Yeah. Like once again, Paul was right about something. Where he got it from or how he learned it, that was a whole different story. But it looks like. He stumbled onto, or they showed him a lot of the stuff that was pretty
1: pacifying. I didn't put this in the book because they just there wasn't room in the book, and they only let let a few pictures get in. But and but I described it in the book. I believe that uh, Paul uh, Bill Moore was at Paul's house one time in the middle of the day. And Paul said, take your camera, point it at Monzano Hill, Monzano Mountain, where the you know, where uh, where the where the underground facilities are and where there's a, t- a Sandia Labs, I believe is behind that from from his point of view, over the top, over behind the mountain. Mm-hmm. He said, Point it at the mountain, put your shutter on a thousand thousandth sou- thousandth of a second, and take a few pictures. And Bill said, Why? And Paul said, Just do it. Sometimes stuff shows up. And Bill showed me the picture, and I've I've used it in lectures. What it, there's this, what looks like a big fat, like I don't know how wide across light beam shooting up into the air and stopping, like a couple, a few hundred or a few thousand feet above the mountain, just stopping in midair.
3: It just stops. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard you talk about that before, either in your your lectures or I've read something about that. I remember you mentioning that.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on with photography that Paul did. Where And I don't know how he figured it out. Maybe somebody told him.
3: But, yeah, that that's the hard part. It's hard to know where he got it. He, he was smart, though, like I said. Yeah. He's one of the sharpest guys I've ever run across. in my, Not that I run across smart people all the time, but yeah. he was definitely smart. And he was self-taught a lot of his stuff, Right, which is interesting, too. Yeah, I think he
1: had a master's, and he couldn't get a doctorate because his company took off, and he really didn't have time to get a doctorate.
3: Yeah, because the family, I think it's more like family, he just didn't have time to mess with it. And, yeah. But um, he was, what's interesting about Paul, is like he was way ahead of his time. Stuff that he was talking about in the 80s, they're barely declassifying now, and he knew all about it back then, which goes back to the 80% of what was being true. Like, that guy was, really knew what he was talking about, and... The book gets into some of the, like, even the photos that he was taking over Kirtland where this air spike was coming out of the aircraft. He talks about the the gas emissions, the nitrogen and oxygen emissions. And when I started following that for researching the book, that led into some of the stuff that Chris Lambright had done on X yeah. descending with the laser aircraft technology. Yeah, That opened a whole can of worms, or not a can of worms, but a whole another level of investigation where like boom this is where this is and that's what led to that um the nasa bdm document with a delta ship see and that all came from paul's evidence because i'm not that smart but paul is pretty smart
1: (laughs) (laughs) well everybody's smart in a different direction paul is just smart in a technological physics
3: direction Uh, i'm more i'm just an investigator so i just yeah well he was
1: probably well paul was a very bad investigator (laughs) because he had a really specific idea about what he wanted things to be
3: yeah and you know just with all the people my dad has dealt with you tend to see that you see that more with like doctors scientists they'll focus on one thing and they'll explain it to you in detail and how it works but they don't look at the bigger picture yeah, and that's what I tried to do with the book because cops are, are law enforcement's opposite. They look at the big picture, yeah, and then they focus into the the details and proving it. So, there's been a lot of doctors and smart people involved in this story for years, and some of them get it, some of them don't, and some of them come leave more confused and frustrated. But the, of what I've seen is like the the scholars tend to focus more like a microscope type because that's what they're trained. You know, and, yeah, <laughs> you're gonna do what you're trained trained to do. If you're going to focus on one specific thing, you're going to miss a lot of things. If you're trained to look at a lot of the whole picture, things tend to come together where you can understand it better. So.
1: Yeah. I got a question I want to ask you about, specifically about information and investigation. I found that somebody will tell me something and sometimes months or years later... That little bit of information makes sense. We've been talking about this with with, with Paul and the and all the stuff that he found out. Um, do, do you have you found that happening quite often with this information, where you see something, yeah. you think, well, that doesn't really make any sense, and then you know months, years down the line, somebody will say one word, and you'll realize that there was something to that, and you had to keep that kind of filed away.
3: Yes, and that's part of being an investigator. That's why my dad was good. He had a very good memory, and hopefully. Well, I've done a lot of investigations just from my job, and you have to remember details, and that's what made him. Well, what was how he was able to figure everything out, and that's what helped me write the book because for me, I remember stuff like a license. My dad would know license plates numbers from 1978 on a case of you know shooting that he handled, <laughs> or he knew what date that the shooting or murder, whatever he handled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember so-and-so got killed on August, whatever, 1974. So he would remember stuff like that. And that's why it's important. Like, a lot of people, if they're looking at aliens, my dad looked at aliens. He kept all that in the back file cabinet of his head. I've yeah. done the same thing.
2: Yeah.
3: And it's not that we haven't looked at it, it's just there's never been anything that goes that direction. So he's um, looked at, you look at the occult, you, you name it, um, they looked at Jim Jones. Huh. <laughs> you know, I have files from the San Francisco Police Department. Their case files from when all that stuff was happening. So they looked at it every angle you could think of, and that's when you really put the pieces the the puzzle together. Is you'll remember something like that's what this is tied to, and then that'll open up doors where you can really get yeah. more information. And that's how I was able to get a lot of the evidence from. Yeah from my dad's files was like, well, this happened back in the 80s, and yeah. I have documents here, let me research it. Oh, and then I, you start finding um, declassified stuff that's yeah related to it.
1: Well, now, now I remember what, what I, why I brought that up, is because I would talk to somebody that was involved, Dodi, or any number of people I could talk to that were involved in uh, classified uh, programs. Uh, one of them, his name was Thomas Dooley. He used to be in the NSA. I talked to him a little bit. Um, yeah. But some of these things these people tell you, they'll tell you all kinds of stuff. And sometimes without any context, they'll just bring stuff up. And you wonder why you're even talking about it because you didn't mention that you didn't ask them about it. Then you realize months or years later that they were really trying to help you out. But they just didn't want to be obvious about it because, one, that's not how they think. And, two, it's because it's easier for them to keep their oaths of whatever they need to keep by not being specific about things. Um, but yeah, some and that's t-
3: how they operate. That's how they're trained to operate. they they are that's the hard part is seeing through the partial truths. They'll give you bits yeah. and pieces. Yeah, and that's why it's important to listen to them. Like, I don't discount Richard Doty what he says because some of his stuff he says is true. But you have to just put it in the back and yeah. wait and see what supports it or refutes yeah. it.
1: That's—I think that's a mistake people make. They're just like, I'm not going to listen to him because he lies. Like, well, then you're going to miss out on the good true stuff then too.
3: Yeah, because parts of it are true and just it's it's intentionally made complex for that reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a. It's once a big you can game.
3: sort through it, 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 it's a lot easier to understand. But um, it's evidence. It's no yeah. evidence. Whether it's a lie or it's true, you know, it's up to people like yourself, Chris, myself, my dad to put it together and try to sort it out yeah. and document it or, you know, provide evidence. And that's the hard part and that's what makes it a complicated story. Yeah. That that's what's the difference between some of these internet posts and some of the stuff that's floating around. Yeah. Yeah. The, the same people keep popping up, they just keep popping up in different locations. Yeah. And that's important for anyone that's listening because you have to under you need to follow if you wanna get a good idea of what's going on. Follow the research that these individuals have done. It's very monotonous, it's very boring. Yeah. But it'll give you a very good idea of what's really going on, but um, it takes time. It takes a lot of time to follow
1: it. And yeah. the I will... website,
3: I, I've yeah. Put it, I'll put it together to save people time from having to search for it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've done it for you. So.
1: Why did so you do you all can... this? We have like three minutes left. Why, what was the point of doing all this?
3: To get my dad's story documented is the main thing. And he solved it. Whether they want to, people want to believe it or not, that's up to them, but he solved it. He was... Him and Paul Benowitz were almost identical. They are very meticulous. They are borderline ADD, both of them. And my dad (laughs) probably was ADD, but he (laughs) solved it. And um, it was frustrating for him because he was limited on what he could say. Yeah. And his story's out there now. If people want to hear it, I appreciate it and I'm grateful for it. And if they don't, that's fine. But um, at least if they're interested, they'll be able to get back on track and see what really happened. And like I said, there's plenty of information if they know where to look and what they're looking for.
2: Yeah.
3: And they can make their own conclusions. I'm not here to convince anyone of what happened or you know, make fun of them for their beliefs or what they believe in. That's their decision. It's just, it's a story. It's an important story because it's history. Yeah. And it needs to be told. And no one's gonna ever be held accountable if they're not looking in the right direction. Exactly. That's the bottom line. There's no ending to the book because it's still ongoing.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to come out there, and I had a contact out there, and he kind of dried up—an underground, uh, uh, underground uh, base person that not really having to do with Dulcie, although he said he knew there was something there, or at least there was, which piqued my interest because that's exactly the same thing that your father said.
3: Yeah, and hopefully that's what this book will do—is get some of these retired people. People know about it. It's just getting them to talk. Yeah. Um, and maybe someone will come forward. I have some other stuff that's developed recently that I'll get with you later, and um, we'll get we'll kind of sort this out. But um, all right. Maybe someone will come forward, and and there's been new developments that I since the book came out. Well, it's not really out, but, but someone that I've heard about the book that it yeah. might lead to something else, and finally just put a put an end to this. <laughs> Yeah, well,
1: you know what, for certain people it will go on forever because that's what they want. But for the people that want to, you know, that like an answer to a mystery so they can move on to other ones, I think this is a great, great step in that direction. And um, I feel really privileged that I got a copy of this before before it was published. When will it be published? When will it be available?
3: Basically, we're waiting for technical issues. The website... The, I have copies here in Albuquerque but the website and Amazon and all these other fun companies. It <laughs> was just running on computer stuff, so in about two weeks it should be available full blast to the public so.
1: okay, well, in that no
3: promises, yeah,
1: <laughs> in that time i'll finish the reading the book and i'll I'll talk to you
3: okay, and like I said, I have some new developments, but um I'll get with you and we'll we can go over some stuff and I'll let you know what's going on.
1: I'm scared. You're making me all interested again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you might have to move to New Mexico.
1: <laughs> well, we, my wife and I both like New Mexico, and we have friends there now. So,
3: And we have good food out here. So. Yeah, it's my
1: favorite food. People tell me, ask, what's your favorite kind of food? I said, New Mexican. They say, what? Mexican? And I say, no, new. New Mexican. What's that? That's
3: yeah, different. <laughs> <laughs> so you're always welcome here whenever you come out. So.
1: All right. Thanks, Greg. And thanks so much for being on the show. The next show didn't come in. I guess we could keep talking, but I got to, I should let you go to sleep and I got to wake up at like six o'clock here. So no problem.
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Well, I, this is probably like, for me personally, it's one of the most interesting shows I've done in a long time because I reading the book and talking to you, all this stuff comes back and a lot of stuff makes a lot more sense, even more sense when I talk to your dad about it.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That was the point. Just, at least getting the story out and getting it straight.
2: So All right,
1: I'm, great. Glad,
3: I'm glad you had me on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks so much, and I will definitely talk to you soon.
3: Okay, you guys have a good night.
1: Oh, uh, what 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 is the website and what is the title of the book so people know where to get it?
3: Well, uh, the website will be dulcebasebook dot com. Pretty uh-huh. simple. Um, I do have a Facebook page. I kind of avoided Facebook like the kid, but I do have one so you can track it. on. If you go to just type Dulce Facebook Book in Facebook, you can kind of keep track of updates and what's going on. And um, it'll, like I said, be available in about a couple of weeks on Amazon and yeah. okay. Barnes and Noble, some of the other yeah. bookstores.
1: Dulce Base, The Truth and Evidence from the Case Files of Gabe Valdez yeah. by uh, our guest and my friend Greg Valdez. Thanks again so much.
3: Thank you, Greg. Good talking
1: to you. Yeah, same here. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye, bye. -bye. That was bloody amazing. I don't. I've got this idea that I don't even want to post the show, but I have to, so I'm going to. I don't have an outro music because I was so interested talking to Greg. I was just like, ah. So, who knows? Something may come out of this. Um, He actually wrote in the book. he's, He's asked if I wanted to continue on with this, and. There's a good chance that I'll want to, and I think it gives me a good excuse to go out and visit New Mexico, which <laughs> I'm always really looking for excuse to go out and visit New Mexico. I'm going to have to put up Chris's show, too, Chris O'Brien, uh, who I had on last week. It's a good, actually kind of a good companion piece. I believe Greg's going to be on the Paracast pretty soon because I put him touch, him in touch with uh, Chris O'Brien, so they actually may have it posted before I do, so we'll see what they say, and, and Chris will have... So many more like interesting on-point questions <laughs> that I didn't have because he was an actual investigator of the cattle mutilation thing in the same, basically in the same area of the country that all this was happening in southern Colorado, which is right next to northern New Mexico and right at, basically the, the the beginning of the San Luis Valley is is just north of Dulce. If you if you drive north from Dulce, it, you you be, enter the beginning of the San Luis Valley, so it's all part of the same um, same milieu up there. There's not too much going on up there now, but there, there's still you know some strangeness, including Bigfoot. That makes no sense whatsoever unless you've been into the paranormal for a long time. And then it does actually kind of make sense that Bigfoot would be seen in the Dulce area. It, it's, it's, uh, if you go there, it's just a kind of a desolate mountain. Not desolate. I mean, it's all pine forest, but mountain area, very rugged. And uh, if there was any place where a Bigfoot could live, that would be one of them. Let's see if we got something vaguely interesting to go out on here. And uh, we'll be. Look, you get the sirens again. I kept having to turn them down while Greg was talking. How about. How about some of sirens? <laughs> there you go. It's an official Radio Mysterioso show now. Well, actually, it was official right at the beginning when those damn things came by. Here we'll just play this. Such a good song. I'll figure out a better one uh, before I post the show. Okay, Roddy Mysterioso is signing off. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Greg Valdez. I know what I can play as an outro, and it's it's obscure and silly. It's a uh, it's the starting of an SR71 engine. <laughs> it's a recording from the 1970s or 80s of an SR-71 engine being started. Uh, they have to start it with a V8 Cadillac engine because the thing has to spin up to 10,000 RPM before it can even start, and they can't afford to put the starter on the uh, uh, on the SR-71 on their jet engines because the, 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 there would be too much weight involved. It's to cut down on weight. Anyway, here's a recording of the uh, an SR-71 having its engine started, probably probably at Edwards Air Force Base. See you next week. Oh, there's the V8 starting up. You can hear it spin up to 10,000 RPM and then hear the jet engine kick in. See you next week.